0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, as well as product design. We have a terrific show this evening. I'm here in Philadelphia at the Mothership in Philadelphia, and it's appropriate that this week we're really focused on some amazing East Coast companies. But to start off the show, I'm very lucky to be joined on the line by John Steinberg, who's the founder of Cheddar. Cheddar is now part of the broader Altice News and Advertising division, which John now also leads. John, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right, so first things first, let's point our listeners to the url for the 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 focal brand here cheddar.com so it's just cheddar.com that's that's a great name
1: thank
0: you so so john uh, i looked on your linkedin and you've got a logo for cheddar and it says cheddar i've heard of it and (laughs) but but you know what you're talking to a bunch of boomers so you got to tell us okay boomer what's cheddar all about
1: well, we, we came up with that tagline because it was the thing that people most often said about Cheddar when they, when they were asked about it. was, yeah, I've heard of it because we have such a large social footprint. We do hundreds of millions of video views a month. A lot of them are gadget videos uh, on Instagram. But Cheddar is first and for, foremost a live news network. Uh, some people call it CNBC for millennials. Uh, we broadcast 10 hours a day. It's on um, Roku, Hulu, YouTube TV, Sling Philo, we have a channel on Optimum. We've got a channel on Direct TV and Direct TV Now. It's what I call a post-cable network. It's what comes after a cable network.
0: All right. So why why do we need another? Uh, why do we need more live TV? And how's it different from from well,
1: live more... TV? Is the thing that's that's doing okay? You know, mm-hmm. as people go to more on-demand content like Netflix and Disney Plus, which launched this past weekend, there still is an enormous appetite for live news and live sports. And when I looked out at the market, you know, four years ago, uh, no one had started a news network in 20 or 30 years, and no one had certainly started a business news network since Fox Business. And I thought that either live viewership was going to go away or it was going to be replaced by something that was younger, faster, and better for a new generation. And so that's what we did.
0: All right. So, tell us a little bit about those attributes. What is it that makes it different from watching? what What would be the what would be the millennial equivalent? Would it be MSNBC or something like that?
1: Well, you know what what makes it different is, first of all, all the content is focused on the topics that are interesting to people in their twenties, thirties, and forties. The mm-hmm. average viewer of cable networks, CNN, CNBC, Fox, uh, Fox Business, is all mid sixties. Mm-hmm. Our, our average viewer is in you know, his or her 20s or 30s. We focus on technology, media, innovation, entrepreneurship. We're delivered on all of the over-the-top platforms um, that, that are where people are going to get content, whether it's the Roku channel or Pluto TV. Um, and we also um, have, have anchors, which are young and diverse, which mm-hmm. you know, differs greatly from what you would have on a traditional um, cable news network. So everything is different other than the fact there are anchors and a set on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and guests, and um, you know, normal business topics.
0: And and what about the format itself? It, it, if I were just to look at the video, other than it being a youthful youthful hosts, uh, is it different in terms of the way you do production or the length or yeah. the style? The
1: fraction yeah. of the cost. I mean, we built yeah. the cable. You know, the first round I raised, we raised less than three million dollars, and we went live with that. Everything is consumer-grade hardware, PC technology that we use. We don't use any of the big iron that is typical of a traditional broadcaster. Um, So the content is different. The delivery is different. um, The anchors and hosting is different. The Mm -hmm. look and feel is different. And the only thing which is the same is the structural format of live guest interviews and newsreaders stays the same. And, you know, what I say in entrepreneurship is, you know, you can change, like, you know, 80 percent of the things, but, you know, 20 percent you want to keep the same. If you try to change 100 percent of the things, it's just too much at once. I mean, Elon Musk has done everything different with SpaceX, but he's still fundamentally, you know, using rockets. Right. So that's kind of how I think about this.
0: Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because in some ways the the legacy businesses are sort of stuck with having to have high production quality because those people in their 60s are watching those things on 4k displays right on the side of their in the side of their their TV room but my guess is the vast majority of your content's being watched on a on a on a smartphone
1: well connected tv is huge for us more and more oh, okay. people are buying roku yeah. tvs or fire tvs mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a big social footprint. So really, the, the gee, I, I guess you are right. I mean, the largest amount of content that people are watching for us are clips on, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, mm-hmm. even TikTok now as well, too. Um, I think it's more just that the legacy structure has so many more people um, and just such a higher cost of yeah. equipment operation. Um, but, you know, look, even the cost of live television has come down a lot in recent years. You, when I was a kid, CNN was always... Um, you know, it was during the height of the Iraq War. It was all live remotes from the desert, right? You know, now right. it's almost all studio-based um, you know, panel shows, and that's just because it's much more cost-efficient to do mm-hmm. that. So even, even there, there's been a change.
0: Yeah. So, so take us back to the beginning. Tell us what you were doing and how you decided this was an opportunity, and how would you proceed with it?
1: Yeah. I was the president of BuzzFeed for four years. I did that from 2010 to 2014. Um, I then had a stint at the Daily Mail, Um, but I always loved CNBC. My whole life, I loved CNBC. As a kid, I loved it. I just, you know, it really spoke to me, smart people sitting around talking about companies and business and technologies, and I wanted to reinvent it, and I became infatuated with live production, just how efficient live was versus taped, edited production, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't get the idea out of my head of creating uh, a next-generation live news network. I loved the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And you know, in the beginning of 2016, I went to the president of the New York Stock Exchange, who I'd gotten to know because I, I had actually been a frequent guest on CNBC, mm-hmm. and said, I want to create another news network that broadcasts on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and I want to aim it at young people. And lo and behold, Tom Farley, who was the, was the president of the New York Stock Exchange at the time, said, sure, give it a go. And if it works out, great. And if it doesn't work out, you're going to have to leave. So, you know, it was sort of an easy bet, I think, a bold bet, but an easy bet for them to make.
0: Yeah. So literally, they, they gave you a studio that that had a backdrop that was interesting, basically. That's but otherwise, exactly right. yeah. Otherwise, it wasn't a huge bet for them.
1: Right. I mean, look, it's a great privilege to be mm-hmm. on the floor. And, you know, what you do there has to, you know, speak to the, the heritage and value and esteem of the location. So, I think they had come to the conclusion that you know I wasn't a complete joker because you know I had done Buzzfeed and mm-hmm. I had appeared on air, mm-hmm. and I think that they figured that it that, that you know at the very least I wouldn't embarrass them. I think was was probably what went through their heads.
0: Yeah, and and to clarify something about your own background, you you had come in as as management in those two previous opportunities, right? You weren't the founder of those, so this That's was right. the first entrepreneurial That's exactly thing, right. yeah.
1: This is my first, but, you know, but I had been employee 15 at BuzzFeed. Oh, okay. Jonah Peretti had founded it. Mm-hmm. Jonah had done all the heavy lifting of starting that company. Um, I made it into a business, you know, with, with the team that I brought in. We, you know, we had very little revenue. Uh, when I got there, when we left, the native advertising business was, you know, growing quickly. And, you know, we had built up the whole engine there. So I, I feel like I had had experience coming in at the ground floor, but, but not literally laying the ground floor. That was the first time I had done this.
0: Yeah, and you know, you must be—you must be proud. Buzzfeed has become like serious, legit breaking news in politics. It's become quite the quite the force.
1: Yeah. You know the the feeling that you have is you realize it's a team, and you realize yeah. all the things that you had nothing to do with. You know the credit for it being such a reputable journalism source is really, you know, Jonah and Ben. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, Jonah and uh, Ben Smith and Ken Lair, and I, I had very little to do with that. You know, for these things to be successful, there's got to be things that you know you contribute and things that the people around you contribute that you play no role in. You know the thing that the thing that Cheddar and now at Altice News that makes me the most excited is when something amazing happens that I had nothing to do with. That that's how I know I have a great company.
0: Yeah, that's very cool. So so again, let's go back to the beginning. So you had you had this great opportunity, which is built on having established relationships, and that was a great backdrop, of course, to launch to launch Cheddar. What did it take to actually get started? To actually go live?
1: You know. It's interesting. I've, I've lived by the mantra of one foot in front of the other.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so because I had been um, early management at BuzzFeed, I had a web of relationships, and I had a great relationship with a guy named Jeremy Liu, who um, was the lead um, consumer technology partner at Lightspeed. And Jeremy had said to me you know, many times over the years, if you ever do something, I, I want to write the first mm-hmm. check, and I don't, I don't really particularly care what it is, you know? Um, and Lightspeed had been the first investor in Snapchat. It was a great firm, and Jeremy was a great partner. And so he said to me early in '16, "You know, what do you want to do?" And I said, "I want to create this next-generation live news network." And he said, "Okay, you know, we'll give you we'll give you three million dollars for it. How's that sound? What do you think is a fair valuation?" And I said, "Well, how about um, how about twelve pre?" And he said, "You know, um, okay, we we have a deal." And so I wow. had the three million. Yeah, and you know, look, raising venture capital—that's really the thing. Which is, if you're out there pitching. I really think it's very unlikely that you're going to get a check. To me, the key really is being part of an early startup management team that's successful, and then being able to parlay that into um, a seed check. It, otherwise, you know, cold emails really don't work for this kind of thing. I think. Um, but you know, then we had three million bucks and a small.
0: But let me interrupt you, John. Let me make sure I understand uh, your your point there. So you're you're saying you have to be credibly going and doing it and sort of make it seem like the party others want to join. Is that the logic?
1: No, not exactly. The, okay. the, the stage, to, the, the the way to start your own business in, in media and technology, in my personal opinion, mm-hmm. is this. You work at a startup. It doesn't really matter what role. You work at a startup. Hopefully that startup is successful and you contribute to it. Even if it's not, you then become a founding member of, of a startup team. That startup... Generally needs to be successful for the next stage to be, which is you then go start your own company.
0: And so, for and you, that, the analogy was yes. Buzzfeed was your first Buzzfeed. gig.
1: Yeah, Buzzfeed, and 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 I had done nothing particularly impressive before Buzzfeed, um, but Buzzfeed was successful. Um, I had played a role in it being successful, like many people, and because of that combination of hard work and enormous amounts of luck. Um, I was able to get a check for this thing, mm-hmm. and that's how it works.
0: Yeah, and on good terms. So you effectively gave up twenty percent of your business. You got, you had three million bucks yeah. in the bank, but three million bucks isn't a lot of money for a for a media company. So, so how, how did you get going with that? With with that, you know, you got precious precious capital. Yeah.
1: We, we, you know, I, I met a guy named Peter Gorenstein who joined me as my as my first partner in the business, um, and Peter was chief content officer. And we showed up at the WeWork the first day and literally looked at each other and said, what now? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, let's go buy some computers. So we went and bought some computers, and then we sat down, and, I, and we said, okay, well, what now? I mean, this is, this is literally, yeah. like, what do we do? How do we start this network? And we started looking for vendors to build the set and vendors to, to supply the equipment. I said, let's shoot a three-minute sizzle reel to mm-hmm. show what it might look like. We shot that. Then I said, okay, let's shoot some sample packages, some, uh, video packages. We did that. And then I said, "Okay, let's go live one hour a day, every day from 9 to 10 Uh a.m. Let's be live. And once we did that, which was, you know, no small feat, I said, "Okay, well, then how do we get to three hours a day live? And it was that incrementality that that allowed us to get to, you know, eight and then 10 hours a day live.
0: Yeah, you know, it's cool. It's not like you're some local television station that has to have 24 hours of content right from the get-go. You could, you could incrementally build an hour at a time, which was a nice, nice feature. But, but how did you manage the demand side? How did you get some eyeballs on that, and how were you distributing that content?
1: Facebook Live started right at the same time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which was a happy accident. And then literally Facebook soon launched an API for Live that allowed us to hook our professional equipment into it. And for a period of time we were getting tens, if not, you know, a hundred thousand people. You know, a lot of them were drive by obviously, but mm-hmm. watching the content. And, you know, then we parlayed that into getting carriage on Sling T V and then all of these virtual MVPDs like Hulu Live and YouTube T V and they all emerged and over the course of three years we were able to get carried across all of those different systems.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with John Steinberg, who is the founder of Cheddar and now president of Altice News and Advertising Division. Um, John, explain to us how that industry works, because it seems like it's it's the monetization model today, right? So, how do you actually get paid, and how does that industry uh, work? Yeah.
1: You know, we have to sell advertising, and you know the carriage fees, the fees that. You know, to explain this to the listener, you know, ESPN gets paid several dollars um, for every subscriber to every cable system in the United States, Mm -hmm. regardless of whether or not they watch it. Now, that that model is is quickly fading. And so for us to get picked up on all these systems, we had to agree, okay, well, we won't get paid by the cable system, Uh. but we'll be able to sell advertising. And so we do these integrated sponsorships where we integrate the brand. We do a personal finance show for Ally. Uh, we have Dunkin' Donuts segments integrated throughout the show. Um, we have a weekly Friday morning show called Ched Her, which is all about mm-hmm. female executives and entrepreneurs presented by Chase. Now, these are standard things that are yeah. done on many news networks, but you know we decided to make it the totality and the center of, of of our business.
0: So that's it's it's interesting. So there are only a few content providers: HBO, ESPN, a few others that actually can get some bucks from the. From well, the dis- everybody
1: gets bucks. All the Discovery Channels get bucks. Mm-hmm. You know, all the Viacom now. You know, some of them are are nickels and dimes mm-hmm. and quarters, right? But but every you know, all the traditional cable channels get you know get paid for
0: carriage. Mm-hmm. And then and then properties like yours, you you agree to do you have to finance you have to monetize some other way and is That's there right. still a revenue share of some kind so of your advertising dollars yeah, yeah yeah yes
1: yes So there's the the integrated sponsorships you know we keep all that revenue mm-hmm. but then there are standard advertising and you know as we grow on these platforms hopefully those you know those standard ad availabilities will become meaningful and we'll get a portion of those and then the provider the cable system or in the case of of a YouTube TV or Sling, what's what's called a virtual a virtual MVPD mm-hmm. a virtual cable company, um, they get a portion of those standard ads as well. And then there's all these emerging platforms like Pluto TV, which is a free TV platform, and the Roku Channel, which is a free TV platform, and another one's called Zumo. There are all these places where people get free news content now on their TVs or their smart TVs. And you know, it's a, it's an amazing world. I'll yeah, I mean, it is the amazing. amount of content you're hard pressed to buy a TV now that doesn't come with some amazing operating system built into it that gives you a bevy of amazing free content. And then you can go get Netflix or Disney plus or Hulu or whatever else you want.
0: Yeah. It really, it really is. It really is amazing. So, so you've been at this, uh, I was looking at it a shockingly short time, less than four years. Um, Tell us how it went in the, say the first year.
1: Oh, I mean, it's just brain damage after brain damage. Really, (laughs) I mean, you know, it's just, it's just brutally hard. And, you know, for me, there's three elements of the business: the the revenue, the content, and the distribution. Those are mm-hmm. always the three mm-hmm. the three legs the business sat on. And at any given time, you know, one was going amazing, one was going okay, and one was going pretty badly. And I would just kind of jump back and forth on each of those three legs of the stool, depending on what needed me um, at any given time. And so, you know, it was never easy. Uh, we never had any you know knock wood. We never had any disastrous moments where you know um, you know, I mean, look, Hurricane Sandy happened while I was operating BuzzFeed. I mean, that, you know, I mean, my, I'm, I'm speaking to you now from from Wall Street. Right. Um, mm. Which is where our control rooms are. We didn't get knocked offline for multiple days. Um, so we've 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 dodged, um, you know, the so-called Black Swan events. We, we haven't had any of those happen.
0: All right. So I, the next thing I want to turn to is. You know, once you get this thing rolling, you've got the basic product uh, working, um, you start thinking about adjacencies. Well, how do we build a portfolio? And I noticed, for instance, close to my heart, you bought—you actually bought Rate My Professors, for example. Do you hate it? it? You hate I it totally hate like... it. It's a terrible—well, <laughs> first of all, the site—well, historically, the site sucked because it, was, yeah. it just didn't— We're redesigning yeah. it. Yeah. But the promise is pretty compelling. Yeah.
1: Yeah, look, you know, I yeah. mean, there's transparency— in every element of business. And college students love Rate My Professors. We bought this asset called MTVU from Viacom, which mm. was 1,500 screens on 500 campuses in gyms, cafeterias, dining halls. It's like the CNN Airport network, except for colleges. Yeah. And this was an asset that sat adjacent to it, and we really liked the college market. And so we said, let's have a, a, a network in these colleges, and let's have the leading kind of user site. I mean, basically, every college kid goes to Rate My Professors to rate their professors. Yeah. You know what? You know every hotel room is rated on TripAdvisor and every restaurant mm-hmm. is rated on open table. and you know why not why not rate the professors? You know it seems yeah. it seems only fair
0: yeah well, but but let me ask you the more serious business question, which is you've got this core thing and and entrepreneurs really must stay incredibly focused to get that little yeah. thing to work. At what point do you start thinking about, wow, we need to think about extending this brand?
1: You know, you also you look for the weaknesses in the business, and you know one of our big biggest weaknesses was we didn't have a direct user relationship because we were going through all these systems mm-hmm. with our feeds. You know, like YouTube knows all the viewers, we don't know the viewers. Sling knows all the viewers, Roku does, and so I didn't think that a media company would be able to build a logged-in relationship with. Um, and look, and some people have proven me wrong. Some like the Athletic have proven me wrong. It'd be interesting to see what the the infatuation guys have to say to mm-hmm. you. Although I suspect part of the reason why they bought Zagat. Um, is because I had this view that digital utilities would be where people would log in and you would have a direct consumer relationship and so you know my venture capital investors were constantly bemoaning that we didn't have that kind of one to one relationship with our users, and so I felt like the way to to think differently about that would be to Say okay. Well, what are what's a digital utility that's located in our space that we can get a hold of that'll allow us to connect directly to users? Mm-hmm. And that was right, my professors.
0: Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, then let's turn to the m- most recent chapters. So you you sold the business and yes. tell us tell us how that how that opportunity came about and how you thought about mm-hmm. it. Yeah.
1: Well, we had uh, Altice USA uh, as investors in the company for you know I think about two years. And they have this News 12 hyper local news network that's in Connecticut, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Long Island, um, Westchester, a host of different regions, and as well as an international news network called I24, and Altice, which is the fourth largest cable company in the U.S. They own Optimum, um, is the brand that people probably know the best, um, who are in our in kind of the Northeast mm-hmm. region, um, and. I felt like we needed uh, a big brother, and mm-hmm. in a world where NBC Universal was owned by Comcast and Time Warner was owned by AT&T, I felt like for us to go to the next level, we needed to be associated with pipes pipes, broadband. And the mm-hmm. consumers were increasingly going to be broadband consumers. And the news they got was going to be, um, in many ways, bundled with broadband. And so it seemed logical. And they were excited. And you know, we had, we had you know, a couple bidders for the company at the time. And it seemed to me the right time to do it. I also felt increasingly that, you know, in this business, I had always been running around with a slingshot Um, you know, in in a world with, you know, bigger media companies having, you know, um, know, firearms, right? Mm -hmm. Um, With all of this activity that had gone on in the space, they had basically upgraded to nukes. And Mm -hmm. here I was still running around with a slingshot, Mm -hmm. right? And that felt like an increasingly unpleasant place to be in with so much consolidation going on in the media and telecom landscape.
0: So, John, let me t- give us your thoughts on the value, the risks, the opportunities for having a strategic investor like that. So for you, it had a happy ending. You took, a, you took money from a strategic, and then you ended up selling to that partner. But it does present some potential conflict. So how would you think about that, and, and what advice would you give so entrepreneurs? I, yeah. I,
1: I have done so many things where people told me I was doing the wrong thing. And making the classically wrong mistake, mm-hmm. and ninety percent of the time they were right. <laughs> okay, I did the I made the mistake. Okay, this was a case where everybody told me not to do it, but I knew that we were going to need a variety of partnerships with these companies. You know, we're on Comcast's X One Box. We're on Direct AT and T's Direct TV. Every one of these investors, we had a strategic relationship with, and so. They were all in there. They were all observers. None of them had board seats. I was able to recuse them when sensitive matters occurred Mm. that we didn't want them privy to. And um, ultimately, one of the acquirers of this business was going to be a large telecom and media company. Mm -hmm. And So my view on it was, and none of them had any kind of first look rights or block rights or anything crazy. They just got to come and learn about the business. Now I think it made us operate the business from day one. A little bit like a baby public company, Mm -hmm. because we had all these people kind of looking at how we were doing and all these people, you know, potentially, um, you know, using our information for competitive purposes. Not that they did, but they could. Right. And so for a business operating in our industry, technology and media or media, um, having the strategic sim was the right decision.
0: And and then and then does it continue I you know, I've never understood quite how this works. How Comcast can own NBC and then NBC still wants to be on, on Altis. Like how how does that how do you manage that? Is there a firewall somehow?
1: Yeah, I think there I think there are I don't know how they operate, yeah. but I think that I think that, that in the world that we live in look NBC Universal's been owned by Comcast. For a very long time, mm-hmm. and Comcast is not in the their geographic footprint. So, for example, um, you know where Comcast is, Altice has almost no no cable system. Mm, there's, there's very few. Yeah. There's very few regions where we overlap, right? And you know where Charter operates, I think they have very little, if any, overlap with Comcast as well, too. Now, so let's take you know Charter. I mean, you know, people want CNBC, MSNBC. Um, Bravo, all the networks that NBC Universal has. And so, you know, no matter – and Charter isn't even really competitive with Comcast Mm -hmm. because they don't even compete in the same markets. And so – and media wants to be free and media – well, not really free, but media wants to be everywhere and media wants to grow. So you're right. It is a little weird, um, especially when when competitors – I mean with the satellite providers, you know, DirecTV theoretically competes with every cable company in the United States and is a buyer of content from – um, from their competitor, from their competitor um, Comcast, right? Uh, Comcast wants cable subscribers. AT&T wants satellite subscribers for DirecTV. AT&T buys the NBC Universal networks from Comcast. Comcast buys the Time Warner networks like t and um, and CNN from AT&T. And so it's a complicated world where competitors are also counterparties.
0: Yeah. All right. I, we have time for just one more question, but I, I, I want to ask you, John, you're now back working for the man. So you, 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 had, <laughs> you had a regular job and then you did this startup thing for four years. Now you're back working for a big company. What, what, what's your reflection on the, the relative advantages of those roles and, and what's ahead for you?
1: Yeah. I just think that it's, uh, it's a journey. And I'm loving this right now, and I work for very entrepreneurial executives, and I have a platform now. Now I run all news and advertising. It's a much bigger job Mm -hmm. than I had before, Mm -hmm. and I've got the scale to do really exciting things. And so I feel like the news and advertising operations inside of Altice are a little bit like a startup. Mm -hmm. So this is a very good fit for me right now.
0: Great. All right, John. Well, it's super interesting. It's a landscape we most of us don't even know anything about. We just watch what's on the screen. So thanks so much for taking the time and for sharing your insights with us.
1: My great pleasure. This was lovely.
0: All right. For more information, first of all, to go to Cheddar, it's a great domain, just Cheddar.com. And then to check out Altice, it's USA A-L-T-I-C-E-U-S-A, alticeusa.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.